The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, EJ, it's that time of year. It's time to get excited about the Eagles again, only to inevitably have our hearts broken. Not going to lie, I identify with the people of, uh, of Eastern PA. It's hard being an Eagles fan, especially because every single July, just like this one while we record, we fall madly in love, and we set our expectations high, and we predict the world, and we hope that they won't hurt us again. Uh, it's going to be one of those years. I, I am ready for the pain on the absolute off chance that maybe, just maybe, this is the year they do it. But before we get into all of the reasons why we think this could be the year, maybe the most talented Eagles team we've seen since they won the Super Bowl, was it five seasons ago now already? Uh, before we get into all that, EJ, my wonderful co-host, somebody who's intimately familiar with the area, how are you doing? What are you drinking tonight? I'm all right. I'm hanging in. We're powering through content. Feels good. The response has been amazing. So thank you all out there who are consuming this audio versions, YouTube. Um, really appreciate all that. All the folks that have subscribed of late have been tremendous. So uh, you like it. You really like it. So that <laughs> uh, that's some good energy for us to keep it going. But teams like the Eagles are one of the reasons that we do this series in general is to look through and say who are the teams that we think can can shoot up a couple of wins and make some noise uh based on what they did last year based on all the moves they made in the offseason we're going to talk about all those and the eagles based on all of that stuff are an exciting team and i think the arrow's pointing up for them in 2020 Two. massively up <laughs> what, would you 2020 i said 2020 and stopped i'm a little tired hey. 2022 that's okay ish ish, ish. Uh, this year we're gonna start- this year <laughs> uh we're gonna start off uh this show the same way we do every single team preview episode because we're doing like 40 of these shows uh we're gonna do a little bit of a 2021 recap of where we left off to set the stage for everything that has happened since the end of last season. Because this roster looks significantly different than it did back then. And yet, back then, there were still some very encouraging signs going forward. And I think some of the, mo- some of the momentum swings that we saw in the last month and a half of that season, where they went 4-1 and one in their last five, I truly think that's what convinced the front office to make a lot of the big splashes that they made since then to cash in on this window because they saw what this team could be. They did finish 9-8. and eight. They were second in the division. 3-5 and five at home. Got to clean that up, but they were absolute road warriors. Probably helps when you run the ball really well. Um, but again, it's, the, it's those last five games, the 4-1 and one record, finishing strong. And I mean really strong. And, and especially you start in the entire second half of the season, starting with like that Detroit game, where you finally saw them in real time get an identity. Because early in the year, they almost refused to run the ball. And then they realized they were really good at it. And then they never <laughs> stopped running the ball. And it, they were a really hard team to beat. Once they got that identity and once they showed in the last half of the season that they were a threat to anybody on a week-to-week basis, that really set the stage for 2022 
And I think what's encouraging about it is not only do they still have that core identity where they can run on basically anybody, but now, based on a lot of the moves they've made since then, I think they're going to be able to throw on anybody too, just because they have way too many weapons for most defenses to handle. When we talked about this team on this series last year, the question that dominated our conversation was how quickly can Nick Sirianni and this very young staff, this inexperienced in an NFL sense overall staff, gel and sort of get things rolling, get guys on their program. And it looked like they were struggling to do that through the first half of the season. And then it happened. And then they got it. They figured it out. They said, we're going to do this. We need to do this. If we're going to pile up some wins, they got a couple and they got hot. They got hot at the right time of the year, a little bit later than they wanted to. But again, with the new coaching staff and all those new systems, that's okay. Finished incredibly strong. And I agree with you that the organization said, okay, we got something here. This is working. We need to give them what they didn't have. And largely they did that. We're going to talk about that. So it's, it's an exciting team. It's exciting to see teams make that leap, to see coaching staffs make those adjustments and not just be stubborn. Nick Sirianni and his staff did an excellent job of that in the second half of last year. Well, speaking of that power structure, let's kind of look at you know the people running the show here. Howie Roseman at the very top, uh, EVP and general manager, 23 years with the organization. He's been with the Eagles just as long as Bill Belichick has been with the Patriots, to put it in perspective. He's been there for decades and decades and decades, or two decades technically. Um, but I think <laughs> other than uh, other than Mickey Loomis and Bill, I think he's probably the longest tenured executive in the league. I, I can't imagine anybody else is up there with him. Um, but yeah, he's he's been around for a long time. Year four of his second stint as GM. Remember, he lost the GM title for uh, the Dark Ages there back in the day uh, in the Chip Kelly era where he lost roster control and things uh, things went a little bit off the rails. So how he got GM again and then uh, that ended up working out for him. They won a ring shortly thereafter. Nick Sirianni in year two at head coach. Um, a lot of people, you know, kind of clowned on his introductory press conference and set expectations based on that little 15 minute snapshot to the media, but he ended up being a, a very successful, all things considered, rookie head coach, um, especially showing the ability to rally that team in the second half of the year. I think the arrow is only pointing up for Nick Sirianni. Obviously, some, you know, a lot of game management um, situations and, and, and game planning things that need to be cleaned up. Like, I do think it took him way too long to adjust to the fact that they weren't running the ball. It should not have taken all the way to the Detroit game like halfway through the year when they finally put up like 40-plus points for them to realize like, oh, yeah, we could probably do that. Wish they would have got to that earlier, but the point is they got to it. So there's at least that. Um, I'm I'm excited to see what he does in year two. Um, Shane Steichen, also year two, offensive coordinator, uh, has a history of developing young quarterbacks, and I think that you know his work uh, with the Chargers and with Jalen Hurts so far has proven to be very valuable. I think Hertz is only going to keep getting better under him. Jonathan Gannon in year two at defensive coordinator, uh, you know, comes from the, the the Minnesota tree or the Zimmer tree, I should say, uh, as a DB coach, was a DB coach with the Colts and with the Vikings before that. I, I have a I have a couple things that I'd really wish Jonathan Gannon would do defensively a lot more that I think would kind of fit the new meta of what defensive football is in the NFL, but we'll kind of get to that in a little bit. I, I, I have my gripes with him as a DC, but all is not lost. It might have just been a talent issue. We'll see how they go this season with you know, some fresh faces in the building that are maybe a little bit more capable than the ones they had last year. And then uh, Michael Clay, year two at special teams coordinator. He was uh, brought over from San Francisco. Um I think that he's still a very a young coach in the game in terms of special teams coordinators, so I, I don't really have an opinion on him. Sometimes it takes a few years for for us to really have an idea of, of who is capable as a, as a special teams coordinator and who is not. So hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have a better idea of what he brings to the table. But uh, for now, that's who we got running the show here. Young staff, somewhat inexperienced staff compared to a lot of others in the league, but... 
looking at the results so far, it's hard to not be excited. On field, can't argue. Again, they they did find it, and there are a lot of young staffs or just new coaches, new coaches in new places that don't, that are stubborn and don't adjust and say, you will, you'll do it my way. That's old school thinking. Nick Sirianni and his staff flipped the script pretty hard midseason, and that to me is a very encouraging sign. The best coaches have to do that because – Football, especially the NFL, is extremely dynamic in terms of who you have available week to week, what's working, what's not, weather conditions, opponents, all that. And if you are rigid in your approach, you'll lose a couple games per year just based on that alone. Um, So showing that you have the adaptability to move to what your team's doing well, ride the hot hand, ride the hot scheme, part of the scheme, is a really good thing. But I want to talk about Howie Roseman for just a second because – Howie's been killing it of late. Um, he, I don't want to say he's unparalleled, but the amount of thievery he has <laughs> sort of foisted upon the rest of the league in terms of gathering picks, um, getting rid of bad assets for good. He just, you look up and it's like he did it again. He did it again. He did it again. So shout out to Howie Roseman as being not only long tenured, but super effective in terms of turning his team's, what his team thinks of as trash at the current moment into treasure that they can then go reinvest or trade for other assets uh, to another third party. Just masterful work. He's right up there in the top tier of NFL GMs and, it seems like at least once a year I turn around and go, he did what? He got what for what? Carson and Wentz for a first-round pick. Sam Bradford for a first-round pick. Like, right. <laughs> just keeps you doing look, it. You look at those and you're like, doesn't everybody know by now that if Howie calls about a you know not super well-performing veteran quarterback, you should just say no? Uh, but they keep saying yes, and it's to his team's benefit. So more power to him. Um, he's doing a great job. And when we talk about all these roster moves, they were able to make many of them because of either cap space he'd pulled back, draft picks he was able to gather and then invest in positions that you know kept them from having to keep expensive veterans. He's he's managed very well the sort of big picture of the Eagles and it's put them in contention for this young staff to sort of mold quickly and, and start winning. And, you know, they won a bunch of games last year and I think they're going to win a bunch more this year. The one thing talking about the, the high level coaching staff here at the coordinator level, the one thing, as I alluded to earlier that I have an issue with is uh, some of the, the nauseating conservatism from (laughs) Jonathan Gannon. Uh, They had the second lowest pressure rate in the league behind only Gus Bradley. Gus Bradley brought it, uh, I believe, 12% of the time. Gannon was at 16% blitz rate. Insanely low. Like, I I get, you know, committing to rushing with four and all that kind of stuff, but at some point, you got to turn up the heat and trust your guys to cover. And I felt like maybe as a DB coach, he leans a little bit too much into protecting his DBs you know, by leaving, you know, linebackers in coverage and hook zones to protect his guys from the inside. You know, he played a lot of, of single high looks, uh, more single high looks than maybe some of the better defenses in the league are playing these days. They were at about 24, 25% total, two high safety structures, meaning cover two quarters, all that kind of stuff. A lot of defenses are playing significantly more than that these days. They were mostly a cover three and cover one team at roughly the same percentage for comparison as like the Ravens, but without the Ravens blitz rate to go along with it, you know? So I I think you're, you're getting some of the negatives of playing so many single high structures, i.e., you know, being super weak to deep crosses and all that kind of stuff. And, but without having the pressure to go along with it. So the quarterback doesn't have time to throw those deep crosses in the first place. So I think that I would really like to see him turn up the heat more. I mean, even just like an extra 10% blitz rate, just to just to get up to like the mid-20s so your average in the league would be great so that 
the corners don't have to cover as long. And in particular, so that the linebackers don't get exposed as much. They had a massive amount of targets go towards linebackers and uh, and Avante Maddox in the slot. So basically everything kind of inside the numbers last year, massive amount of targets go their way. And they gave up a lot. So, you know, they do have some personnel changes that will help them in coverage in those areas this year, which we're going to get into, but... I'm sorry, you know, any linebacker on the planet is still going to give up probably a whole bunch of catches if the quarterback has three seconds and he's got to guard, you know, some running back out of the backfield with a two-way go. Like, you're still going to give up a lot of catches no matter who's back there. So I would like to see them turn up the heat more, use their linebackers more in the pass rush, and in general, you know, maybe start to look at some of these two high looks that have better leverage on deep crossing routes because inevitably the Cowboys are going to shred them with them if they don't and just kind of get a little bit more in line with the defensive meta of the NFL because playing cover three and rushing four, even if you do it in fancy ways at this point, is not not what you want to be doing against modern offensive tendencies. It's just not. Yeah, you're going to get got, and we should be specific. It's it's a great two points that you brought up, really, which is when we're talking about adaptability and flexibility, really was on the offensive side. That's that's where we saw a lot more of that from the Eagles, and they took a lot of shit defensively, and Eagles fans were really frustrated by that, especially at the linebacker position because the linebacker position got eaten. Um, mm-hmm. Longtime Eagles fans were aghast at the kind of linebacker play they were seeing because they've been treated to some very good linebacker play over the years and they didn't see it last year team went out and made some changes to address that uh that we'll talk about when we get to the personnel piece but we got to run through notable coaches really quick and there's some fun ones in philadelphia we'll start on the offensive side brian johnson is the qb coach he was the youngest fbs offensive coordinator at utah he was 24 years old Mm. He's guiding an FBS offense at 24, basically a couple of years after he got out of college. To me, that's amazing. Worked with Dak Prescott at Mississippi State, uh, moved on to Florida, worked with Felipe Franks and Kyle Trask there when they had that high-powered offense. So he's had a track record of developing quarterbacks, yes, at the collegiate level, comes to the Eagles with a very good track record, and you know Jalen Hurts is the beneficiary of that. Jeff Stoutland is the run game coordinator and the offensive line coach. Survived the transition. This is one guy that Nick Sirianni probably said, please, 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 Jeff, can you just hang out? Uh, He's been in Philadelphia nine years. He's led five players to a total of 16 Pro Bowls. He's uh, well-established as one of the reasons the Eagles are able to run the ball so well in the second half. And probably in the first half of the year, he was saying, you know, coach, <laughs> I could do better for you if you'd give me some more chances. Um, I wouldn't doubt it. And he showed that he could in the second half of the year. Aaron Moorhead is the wide receivers coach. He's a former NFL wide receiver himself, played for the Colts, uh, was with them when they won the Super Bowl. He is also the son of Emery Moorhead, longtime NFL tight end who won a Super Bowl with the Bears. And that brings up an interesting factoid. They are the third father-son combo to both win a Super Bowl. Also, probably like the eighth coach we've had this series that's the son of a former Bear. Something about Bears in the 80s and 90s and having kids that grow up to be coaches. I don't know what it is. Yeah, well, they had some decent examples (laughs) on those teams, and a lot of those players are coaches. I mean, Ron Rivera was on those teams. So, uh Alex Tanney is their offensive quality control coach. He's a former NFL backup, and if you kind of remember his name, it's likely because in nine seasons he played with the Chiefs, the Cowboys, the Browns, the Bucks, the Titans, the Bills, the Colts, and the Giants. So if he stopped by on your team for a cup of coffee, that's why you remember his name. Um, But on the defensive side of the ball and special teams, Tracy Rocker is the defensive line coach. We talked about that defensive line. They've had a very good defensive line. I'm sure he would like to let his guys off the chain a little bit more. Uh, Maybe he gets to this year. But Tracy Rocker himself was a two-time All-American in college. He was also the 1986 SEC Player of the Year. Um, Then got drafted in the third round, which if you're the SEC Player of the Year these days, you don't get drafted (laughs) in the third round. Uh, But he's a member of the College Football Hall of Fame, and he is a 30-year NFL coaching veteran. So tons of experience there. 
And the other familiar name on defensive side of the ball is Jeremiah Washburn, senior defensive assistant, one of those vague titles, sort of a uh, problem solver for hire on a week-to-week basis. But uh, longtime Eagles fans will say, Washburn, is that is that Jim Washburn's kid? And the answer is yes, indeed it is. Jeremiah is Jim's son. I honestly, I feel old now because I, I remember Jim, what, 15 years ago or more actually, you know, being the, again, another one of those traveling mercenary D-line coaches in the, like we see with like Andre Patterson and now his kid's doing the same thing. I'm aging in real time, EJ. I don't like it. I don't I'm watching. It. I'm just sitting over here on my <laughs> rocking chair going, yeah, catch up, Junior. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com match. Just go to Indeed.com match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Uh, Let's talk about personnel losses and personnel gains. I'm going to kind of do this all all together because I think they all kind of fit together. Uh, When you look at the the losses either through cuts or, or trades or just letting contracts expire and guys hit the market, there's a significant number of starting snaps that were lost compared to most other teams. Not the most names total, but in terms of actual snaps and production lost. This team let a lot of dudes walk out the door. But they kind of had to. Because when you look at not just cap space, but we're talking about effective cap space uh, heading into this last free agency period. Effective cap space is how much cap space a team is projected to have after they actually get up to you know, 51 players signed, the minimum that they need signed. They only had $8 million going into free agency. So they had a lot of tough choices to make in terms of guys to let go, um, you know, where they wanted to allocate their money. They had to do some creative cap work to, to get it done. Eventually they did. But because of that, again, a lot of starting snaps walking out the door. Ryan Kerrigan, 30% of the snaps, he's gone. Jordan Howard, he's gone. Hassan Ridgeway, Alex Singleton was a starting linebacker. Very productive against the run. A little bit of a liability in coverage. Not the worst player, but just for how often their linebackers are asked to cover, he just wasn't uh, wasn't a fit for what they needed. He's now in the Broncos, by the way. But he's gone. Rodney McLeod is now a Colt. Nate Herbig, uh, a, a starting guard for them who played a, a pretty significant number of snaps. He's gone. Uh, and then Steven Nelson, a starting corner last year, is also gone. He's in Houston now. So, again, not... Not any stars, but a lot of down-in, down-out kind of guys that that played a lot for them are no longer there. But at the same time, after all of their creative cap work they did, they were still able to retain Jason Kelsey for maybe his last year. We'll see. I think he's. This might be kind of a you know a one last ride type situation because they just drafted his his heir apparent. But he's at fourteen million. That ain't cheap. Uh, Greg Ward, they brought back, even though it's only a million, again, for a, a wide receiver four slash five type. Uh, Fletcher Cox, 14 million, another semi big money contract that they had to make room for. Derek Barnett, at only 7 million. It's okay, I, I would say. It's an okay deal for a, an okay player that maybe hasn't lived up to what we hoped for when he was coming out of Tennessee. It's not the most money, but I still. I still might have used that money elsewhere, but hey, that's just me. Uh, Boston Scott, I actually really love this deal for less than $2 million for what he brings to their, their running back room. Anthony Harris, uh, as a, a starting safety for them, brought him back for $2.5 million. But the, the big, big money, even beyond all of that, which is, what, like $40 million or something like that, $30, $40 million. even beyond all that, the big, big money was with players that they got elsewhere 
from other teams. There was the trade for H.A. Brown and then immediately signing him to a $25 million a year deal. There was Hassan Reddick, who they got from Carolina, $15 million for him. He's actually making more than Fletcher Cox, believe it or not. Um, James Bradbury, who they kind of lucked out that the Giants were in their own little cap hell and they had to let him go. So the Eagles said, fine, we'll take that. Uh, we can upgrade from Steven Nelson immediately uh, for not that much more money. He's only making about $3 million more than Steven Nelson at about 7.25. So great deal for that. Uh, Zach Paschal for a million and a half? Hell yes. Hell yes. And then uh, Kazir White at $3 million, a starting linebacker who's excellent in coverage. But moral of the story, all of those guys, less players, add up to $50 million. So between their retentions and their third-party signings, they went into this free agency period with about $8 million of effective cap, had to do a whole bunch of creative stuff to open up space, and then spent like 80 to $90 million within a week. But if you're going to spend 80 to $90 million, I think they probably did it in the best possible way they could. They got better at several positions. They replaced guys they lost. They upgraded from guys they lost. They got a new weapon who may or might be their new wide receiver one, which is saying a lot because they have some talented guys there now. That was the best possible way to turn a semi-dicey financial situation into a significantly better roster before we even got to the draft. When we look at the additions that came from outside Philadelphia, it's really A.J. Brown at $25 million, Hassan Reddick at $15 million, and James Bradbury, who, again, you mentioned they sort of lucked into late when the Giants had to let him go so that they could sign people at $7.2 million. Significant amount of cash, but three positions where, yeah, now you've got your alpha. I think Devonta Smith could play that role, but now he doesn't have to. He can be the everything else. He can be your guaranteed number two. He can move inside, win from the slot, which we saw him do a ton in Alabama. A.J. Brown can be the one guy you're always lining up outside who's going to win his matchup. Hassan Reddick, you talked about their blitz percentage being low. You need fire breathers that can get home, and Hassan Reddick is a proven rusher in this league they say great 15 million on the line we need that you know we want to protect folks even if we go out and get better linebackers we don't want them to have to cover for four seconds that's not a recipe for success so get home in three 3.2 and you know get our guys off the hook james bradbury slots in as a starting quarter again better upgrade from what they had only 7.2, I say only 7.2 because lots of players of his caliber are getting eight, nine, ten million million a year or more. Those three right there are mm -hmm. excellent additions and, and move the needle for this team. Those three will play a lot of downs combined. When we do this next year, they're still with the team. Their snap percentages are going to be up there. And Kazir White and Zach Paschal are two under-the-radar additions for a lot of fans. Kazir White was a linebacker that I wanted to go to Chicago. Excellent in coverage, has played very well uh, in Los Angeles, and they needed him. They needed him badly, and they got him for only $3 bucks. They didn't overpay. Um, they were able to wait that out. They also got another linebacker in the draft we'll talk about to really buttress that weakness and turn it into more of a strength and Zach Pascal, same thing I wanted him to go to Chicago as wide receiver three or wide receiver four I figured with his production in Indianapolis he would cost three million in the current market they get him for half that mm -hmm. and he is exactly that for them he is their probably not even their three he's probably solidly their wide receiver four for 1.5 and he will produce I think he and Jalen Hurts are getting going to get along famously so Look at those five moves from outside the Philadelphia organization, and all of them have a defined role. The first three are going to play a ton of downs for them. The team got better. They spent a lot of money to do it, but they got better in doing it. And again, I think this goes back to what we talked about in the beginning of the episode. That late season surge proved that even with a a, a, a talent-deficient roster at some places that you really don't want to be talent-deficient, they were still winning games, and they were still, you know, making a playoff push to the very end. Imagine what they can do with better talent. So Howie said, screw it. Let's let's break out, uh, you know, Mr. Laurie's checkbook, spend a whole lot of money, do some creative stuff with the cap, we'll pay for it later, which they will, believe me, they will, they'll pay for it later. 
but let's go for this thing in 2022. A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, um, you know, Quez Watkins, Zach Paschal is your top four. I, I, I don't even know what to think of Jalen Rager at this point, but just those as your top four. Awesome. Dallas Goddard and probably Grant Calcaterra as your top two tight ends. 100%, I could ride with that. A million running backs. Miles Sanders, Kenneth Gainwell, Boston Scott, uh, Kennedy Brooks. Th- throw any of them out there and they'll be fine. You know, they're not all the same skill set, but you can roll with any of them in that type of run scheme and be fine. And then you got Jalen Hurts, who has only gotten better every every single year of his life, if we're being honest, since he was 18 and freshman of the year at Alabama. Every single year, he's gotten better. So I think Howie looked at this and, and said, we're, we're not even all the way there yet and we're winning. What happens if we do get all the way? Which then leads us to the draft. They came in with a lot of high-value assets, moved some stuff around, obviously, for the A.J. Brown trade. Um, Still ended up with uh, three picks inside the top 100. And even though it was a smaller class, I think you and I can agree that every single pick they made is potentially an impact player. player, Excuse me. Not all starters immediately, but still impact players, even if they're not playing all the snaps. I agree, and I want to go back to one name you mentioned, which was Jalen Rager. This is what <laughs> this is what Howie does, right? Punts now, on a missed pick? No. Now, if he needs to move Jalen Rager before camp or right before the season, if it turns out that Rager's going to be you know, wide receiver five and not play a lot for them, and he wants to go grab a late-round pick, he'll be fine. It is in no way hamstringing the Eagles if he does that conditional seventh from Chicago is what we're talking about here it's a it's a nothing asset at this point I I truly agree with that but if you were only three wide receivers deep you would keep your nothing asset as wide receiver four and be saddled with that because he goes out and gets a guy like Zach Pascal for a million and a half if anybody wants Rager he can let him go for pennies on the dollar and feel fine about it because his team's in a good place and he gets another asset to use next year so that's the kind of thing when we're talking about horse trading in the NFL that Allie Roseman is excellent at. So in the draft, starting off, they had a pick in the first, a pick in the second, a pick in the third, and they dropped all the way down to two picks in the sixth. So not a ton of ammunition, but like you said, made impact with every pick. First pick, 13th overall. So a lot of questions about where they were going to go with this picks. It ends up being Jordan Davis, the massive defensive tackle from Georgia. Again, more firepower for that defensive line. Traditionally, the Eagles have loved their lines. They invest heavily in their offensive line and their defensive line, and they have had stud upon stud on both sides of the ball there for a very long time. The second round, they come right back and support that pick 51. They get Cameron Jurgens, the center for Nebraska, who was one of the, I'd say, meteoric risers of this draft cycle. When when things started off, Cam Jurgens was considered a fifth or sixth round pick. He was always going to get picked. He was a hell of an athlete. As people went back to his tape and saw how athletically gifted he was, how raw he was, and how much more room there was to improve. He continued to rise month over month until we got to the draft, and he ends up going the second round earlier than I would have picked him, but lands in a perfect spot. You mentioned it earlier. Jason Kelsey is excited about that pick, said, nope, we got a guy. It's my job to groom him. He's a lot like I was when I was younger, except a better athlete. I can set my team up for success moving into the future if I teach Cam Jurgens what I know and polish up those rough edges. Pick three, or sorry, round three, pick 83. N'Kobe Dean, linebacker from Georgia. And if you'd told me at any point throughout the draft process that N'Kobe Dean was going to be available at 83, I would have laughed in your <laughs> face loudly. Soundly, I would have said, no, uh-uh. And I, you know how much I hate being that guy that says he won't be there or he'll never be there because weird things happen. Nobody saw the shoulder issue, injury. I'm not sure how we're going to classify that because nobody will really put their finger on it and say exactly when it happened, how it happened, what's going on, or where he's at in his rehab. So 
Bottom line, Eagles benefit. They're willing to pull the trigger, even with the uncertainty at pick 83, for one of the best linebackers in this draft. And what did we say Philly really needed from last year? Linebackers. They get Kazir White. They draft N'Kobe Dean, assuming he's back at full strength, which we all hope he is because he's a fantastic football player. That linebacker room looks worlds different than it did last year. So take heart, Eagles fans. I know that you were very upset with linebacker play last year. You have a lot more to look forward to this year. Round six, we dropped to pick 181, you know, 100 pick gap there, and they get one of my favorites, Kyron Johnson, the linebacker from Mm -hmm. Kansas. Now, I say linebacker because he played some middle linebacker. Kyron Johnson is on the short side right at or maybe just under six feet tall and uh, 230-ish on a good day. (laughs) Soaking wet, maybe. (laughs) Incredibly fast. And played at edge a lot for Kansas. You might say six foot, 225, 230. They played him at edge. Yes, they did. He was a very effective edge rusher. And uh, it's a little odd because, you know, Jannard Avery is a player that the Eagles went out and got in a trade. They let him go this year. But Kyron Johnson, my comp was Jannard Avery, right? A pass rusher who's very effective, who does not have a traditional frame for the spot. Um, I think he is going to be a great special teamer immediately because he's extremely fast and he loves to hit he can work his way into a defensive line situational rotation on third downs and be somebody that brings heat in a very few number of snaps because he's already done it he went to the senior bowl blew up trevor penning uh raised some eyebrows there with his ability to really get into people's chest with that again low center of gravity and speed fascinating little player is he going to play a ton of base defensive snaps he's not is he going to be somebody that's going to have a few defensive highlights this year and a bunch of special teams highlights i would put pretty good money on that their last pick final pick in the sixth round 198 grant calcaterra the tight end from smu played a long time at oklahoma took his grad year at smu he is a very polished tight end who is a pro right now fully understands how to get open, fully understands how to run routes. He is a pass-catching tight end, largely only. I do not want Grant Calcaterra blocking, but he is going to find space. He is. He reminded me a lot of Mark Andrews when he was at Oklahoma. Uh, he has developed differently than Mark does, but I love his ability, his savvy, his approach. He understands everything about what he's doing in the passing game, and the Eagles are going to benefit from that. I think overall, looking top to bottom, um, I think a lot of these guys fit the profile of players they already have, and they're just younger versions of players they already yep. have. Jordan Davis, young Fletcher Cox. You want to play nose, you want to play two eye, you want to play three, you want to play five. Yeah, you can do all that. He's a freak of nature. He can do literally everything for you, and you plug him and Fletcher next to each other on early downs and just kick the shit out of run games. Um and then, you know, you're you're rotating in Milton Williams and um, Javon Hargrave on third downs who are better pure pass rushers, and you, and you just go to work. Like, that's going to be his role is to be the new Fletcher Cox. Cam Jurgens is the new Jason Kelsey, almost the exact same uh, athletic profile. Um, he's not Jason Kelsey yet, but as you alluded to, Jason Kelsey said, he's going to be me. I'm going to make sure of it, which when Jason says that, I believe it. Uh, Nicobe Dean. Is very similar to Kazir White. Not gonna lie, like skill set wise, they're they're not that far off from one another. Nakobe's built a little bit more um, like a mini fridge, um, but I think in terms of skill set and role, extraordinarily similar players, uh, undersized linebackers that are really specialists as coverage uh, as coverage players and as blitzers. Um, Kazir can navigate through the trash and play the run pretty well too, but I'm not necessarily uh, he's not somebody that I want like taking on blocks and all that kind of stuff which is fine because he's gonna have Fletcher Cox and Jordan Davis in front of him anyway so nobody's ever gonna block him no matter what um, but it's gonna be good for Nicobe to learn from White assuming the health checks out I know that there were ankle injuries foot or foot injuries shoulder injuries wrist injuries he you know strained a peck before his pro day there, there's a there's a lot of stuff going on there that likely contributed to him falling to the third round in the first place, but he's in a good spot to learn and develop. Um, and then Kyron Johnson, how can you look at him and not just see another Hassan Reddick? You know, 
smaller guy, super explosive, experience at edge, experience at inside linebacker. Uh, if anybody can teach him how to win as a pass rusher at that size, it's Hassan Reddick, who is a similar size with similar first step explosiveness. So again, they're just kind of looking at certain molds that they already had and just saying, let's go get another one. Uh, and then Grant Calcaterra, he's not the same as Dallas Goddard because I think Dallas is a better blocker, but in terms of receiving skill set and movement ability, very similar players coming out of college, I would say. Um, the the reason why Grant fell down uh, significantly on the board, I would say, is because of um, – you know, concussion issues that, that first led to his retirement from football in the first place, and then he came back. Anytime you retire because of head injuries, teams get a little bit wary, so I, I, I can understand why he fell a little bit because of that, but mm-hmm. that was what really struck me about the draft, is they recognized the assets they already have that work, and they wanted to just get more of them and insulate themselves from injury in case those first guys go down, because... You can't really replace Fletcher Cox unless you have a guy like Jordan Davis. You can't do a lot of the stuff in the run game that you do with Jason Kelsey unless you have a guy like Cam Jurgens. And you can't do all the coverage stuff that you can uh, with N'Kobe Dean uh, unless you have a guy like White as well. So it's it's a fascinating way to build a football team, but I can't say I disagree with it. No, and we should stress that Grant, uh, you know, as a six-round pick, does not have to play. We think if he's healthy, he's going to play very soon. But Philadelphia is another one of those teams that has like six tight ends on their roster right now. They've got Dallas Goddard, Jack Stoll behind him. They've got the behind Grant, who's currently listed as third on the very preliminary depth chart. They've got Tyree Jackson, the quarterback convert from University of Buffalo, who's now a tight end. Uh, they've turned J.J. Arcega-Whiteside into a tight end. They've got Richard Rodgers back, Noah Togiai. Like, they've got a lot of players and they can sort it out in the off season. Now, if it's pure pass catching and he's healthy, I'm going to put Grant as number two, worst number three there. But if he doesn't work out for any reason, risking a sixth round pick at almost pick 200, no skin off the Eagles nose. They have plenty of players at that spot. So uh, what I would call a good and healthy risk. If we're adding the UDFA class to their draft hall, they did really well. <laughs> they, again, took calculated shots. Not a massive class, but I highlighted more guys. If I'm doing highlights per overall number of players, the Eagles have one of the best ratios in UDFA from this entire season. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So, start off with Carson Strong, a quarterback from Nevada who is not going to be physically ready to play this year but had a lot of physical upside. Interestingly, and and production, even on one leg. So the deal with Carson Strong is he had a bad knee. Doctors told him, hey, you need to do this to fix the knee. He said, well, I miss my senior season. Doctors said, yeah. And he was (laughs) like, no, I'm not doing that. I want to support my teammates. Came out and played on one leg. If you watch his senior tape at Nevada, he was pegging around. He could not move, and he still threw for a billion yards and had the best deep ball accuracy of anyone in this class. And I mean, anyone top to bottom, if he sits for a year, gets the knee right and gets healthy, he very well could be a, a worthy backup quarterback candidate for the Eagles that they got for free. Think about that quarterback that can play in the league for free worth every risk you take there. Interestingly enough, and I don't know if you've heard this as well, but since the draft, as I've asked around, because I was like, he, he should have gotten drafted. Should have been late, but should have gotten drafted. I heard, I've heard more than once from different sources that I'm not, I think don't know each other. So in terms of corroboration, that he interviewed horribly. Which is interesting because I, I had not heard, I, I heard not the same things, people. but yeah. I... 
I had not heard anything about that until after the draft. No, it was complete lockdown before the draft. Never heard a whisper of that, not once. And since the draft, I've heard it three times, three totally different people, and they used uh, some superlatives about how badly they went. They said, it's not the knee. And I was like, well, what the heck is it then? Because if you look at his film and his physical profile, if he is healthy, he's got all the tools, got a great arm, he's got good size. They were like, nope. In the interview room, there were a lot of teams that just sort of crossed him off. And I was like, huh. Again, we don't get that chance. We've never met Carson. Um, Based on what he was able to do on the field and how his teammates responded to him, I was surprised by that. But you never know. So interesting and something to keep an eye on. But again, no skin off the Eagles' nose if if that doesn't work out because they didn't, quote unquote, pay anything for him in draft (laughs) capital. Kennedy Brooks, the running back from Oklahoma. A lot of people were really high on him as a late-round running back. I wasn't as high as a lot of others, but I can see what they see. And again, adding him to a very talented running back room where you do not have to shuffle him into any kind of role soon. And if you get something, even if he hangs out on the practice squad, well done. Noah Ellis, the massive defensive tackle who played at Idaho. We got a chance to interview him uh, at Shrine Bowl. Go over to the Bootleg Football Clips channel and check that out fascinating guy huge 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 dude wildly athletic super Mm -hmm. (laughs) soft-spoken so his dad's luther ellis played in the league um was going to be the defensive line coach at idaho that's the reason he went there had offers from any school you could imagine you name it notre dame tennessee clemson georgia he he georgia wanted to put him next to jordan davis on that defensive line by the way to give context to how fucking big that defensive line would have been yeah Noah's an amazing dude some of his workout stories just drop drop my jaw like I was I think he said he was pressing something like 480 or 580 with one leg yeah single leg plate and I was like what <laughs> uh so Noah Ellis you know he's got some technique things to clean up some mental things to clean up but physically he can dominate just about anybody in front of him even at the NFL level um, Josh Joby, cornerback from Alabama. I liked him. And the fact that he went undrafted says to me there was something going on there because his tape screamed like no later than the fifth round, you get this guy. He's got good size, played in a major conference, did pretty well, uh, didn't get drafted. Eagles are again the beneficiary in a secondary that could use it. Mario Goodrich from Clemson, another corner, same thing. Uh, was the second corner on that team, but still had a draftable grade on just about every board that I looked at. I would have picked him in the fifth or sixth easily. He makes it all the way out of the draft. Eagles scoop him up for nothing again. And then Reed Blankenship, the safety with really good size for Middle Tennessee, who I was super excited about last year. He chose to go back for another year to Middle Tennessee. We got to see him at the Shrine Bowl as well. He's one of those guys that I think probably would have been drafted if he came out after last year. His, his star was a little bit higher then. Um, had a decent year, but didn't sort of show any improvement. So sometimes that causes your draft stock to dip a little bit. He can kind of do anything for them. He can be that third safety in three safety sets. He could certainly play a special teams. He's a heady player. He's a captain. He called the defense for middle Tennessee, um, to be able to come out with, you know, three good players in the secondary, uh, uh, athletic phenom at defensive line who might turn into something amazing, and then two players who could contribute on offense down the line, all from the undrafted ranks. Great job by the Eagles. I think the two that I'm probably most excited about are Noah Ellis and Reed Blankenship, um, two guys that we saw up close in Vegas. And and Noah's the obvious one because, you know, the Eagles have a type at DT. And it's just <laughs> giant boulders of human beings. That one's pretty easy to figure out. Probably end up in the practice squad just because their defensive tackle rotation is so deep. I just don't think there's going to be a roster spot there. Uh, nothing against Noah Ellis. It's just a, it's a deep team. Um, but Reed Blankenship is really the one that excites me because when when we were sitting there and watching him in drills, and this is a thick, squarely built DB, but you saw him doing all the movement drills. You know, he was doing the W drill. He was doing, um, you know, all the pedal drills and the 90-degree breaks and stuff like that. I'm like, man, for a guy who's built like that, that, that tackles like that, because he had multiple years of over 100 tackles, he's really not not a slouch in the run game at all. I was like, his hips are pretty good. And it it kind of, <laughs> this is going to sound super hypocritical because we talk shit on Dan, Sor- Dan Sorensen all the time. 
But like if Dan Sorensen can make it, Reed Blankenship can make it. Because I think Reed Blankenship's movement skills are even better than Dan Sorensen. I'm not saying that he's the fastest guy or the quickest guy, but for somebody who is as tough and productive against the run as he is, that can move better than a guy who has played a lot in this league, I don't see an argument why Blankenship doesn't end up as the third or fourth safety on this team as a UDFA rookie because I think he's better against the run than Kayvon Wallace. I think he's better against the run than, than um, you know, Jared Maiden or Andre Shashir. Like, Chiquisky Tart, I think that he's got higher upside than Tart even at this point. Safety is not that deep for them. It's really not. It's the one position group on the roster that you look at and you're like, I don't know about that. If there was ever a place that Reed Blankenship can get significant steps, as you said, as that third safety, it's here. And I, I do think that he is going to make the roster. Yeah, I feel the same about Joby. I really think, uh, you know, well-schooled under Saban in Alabama, has the physical size, has the skills. Again, not the most fluid guy, but fluid enough to get it done with his combination of physicality, size, and movement skills. He's he's not a terrible mover on the football field. And again, the depth at corner when you start getting down into the second or third string, which is where he's going to slot in, he's got a chance to unseat some of those guys. So great haul for them in UDFA. When you combine it with the draft class, which we mentioned was super purposeful, and, and again, you can see very clearly why those players were picked for this system. Great job in the offseason. Combine that again with the third level of free agency additions from outside, which we said, again, few but high impact. This team got a lot better in the offseason. And it's through that lens that we now take it to the last segment as we end every single episode, team floor and team ceiling. This is the, 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 the ceiling of wins and the floor of wins as we see it. Given the context of everything we just talked about in the last 45 plus minutes it's a 12 win team potentially not guaranteed because obviously anything can happen with health and and all that but there's really not any major glaring weakness that i that i think is going to cost them a significant number of games i think the quarterback situation is better than people give it credit for the offensive line is deep the weapons are there the defensive line is at least on the interior, as deep as ever, and edge is still good. Linebacker is improved. Corner is at minimum fine, if not more than fine. The one thing, as I mentioned, that's kind of eh, iffy is safety. But if you're going into the season with like the one position group that you're kind of eh, uh, is safety, you're feeling pretty good about the roster overall. So I think that this is very easily a 12-win team as a ceiling, especially looking at their schedule, because the schedule is not nearly as brutal as a lot of the uh, a lot of the other teams we've gone over. At their floor, again, one of the higher floors that I think we're talking about here, and that's eight, and that's if everything goes wrong. We're talking about Jalen Hurts is injured, you know, AJ Brown is injured again, um, and then you got a backup quarterback thrown to. Devonta Smith and hoping for the best you know maybe the defensive coaching staff doesn't make some of the adjustments we talked about early <laughs> and they're still the <laughs> highly predictable uh you know maybe white gets heard and Nicobe Dean still isn't totally healthy or you know maybe the edge rushers take a lot of take a lot of beatings and and, and just everything falls apart absolute worst case scenario eight win team like I or eight, eight win team is a floor which is still good like if you're absolutely minimum going to be an average football team, that's a season to look forward to. But on the high end, as I mentioned, 12 wins, making a run at the first seed, trying to host the playoffs all the way to the Super Bowl. And I think that if if any team out of the NFC East has a shot to make a real run here, you could argue it's Philly. They're my sleeper team in the NFC for a lot of the reasons you mentioned. They won a lot of games last year and they only got hot at the end we talked about the run at the end sort of really highlighting that progress and transition but then you take that team that figured it out and was pretty good was knocking on the door of 10 wins talk about all the personnel ads 
the high profile free agents, very solid draft class, even the UDFAs, they got better at spots they needed to get better at. You take that and say, okay, it's a good team, and I stacked a lot of good or even great personnel moves on top of that. And then I look at the schedule in the conference, right? Their particular schedule as a team and the conference as a whole. Their schedule's a little soft on paper. We realize that'll that'll change as the year goes on. Not all these teams stay the same. But when you combine those three things, if you're looking at a team to make a run from single digits to being a, a strong playoff contender, talked about Jalen Hurts' profile. Every year he gets a little bit better. People are underestimating him. His weapons are improved. The things that could throw them off, because I too say 12 wins is their is their ceiling, and I could see them getting there pretty clearly. I can see that path. I say six. My range is bigger because if the defense with its new personnel fails to make those adjustments and sticks in single high looks as much as they did last year and is stubborn about that, which I don't expect because the offense showed flexibility, I would assume the defense would do the same, but maybe not. There can be a sort of two houses situation in some teams where they don't necessarily share the same values about how they go about things if that defensive staff doesn't adjust to its new players with a scheme that gives their defensive line a little bit more leash to hunt you know protects their defensive backs in that way as opposed to just always sort of dropping coverage and exposing linebackers i could see teams sort of getting a book on them figuring them out and you know boat racing them not sure this offense is ready yet to boat race people think they can beat people if their defense is solid but that's the one thing that really worries me and it would take injuries of course probably to the starting quarterback and to some of the key positions where they don't have a lot of depth to get down to that six wins it'd be a massive regression they won nine last year that's three less games with a way better roster and a more experienced coaching staff i don't see it happening i could i just say could at this point if i'm rolling money on this team i'm putting it way closer to double-digit wins than anything in the mid-single digits. So we're both looking at 12-win ceiling. We're both very high on this team. We both think they could be Super Bowl contenders. You know what that means, EJ? New York Giants winning the division. Let's <laughs> go. It means we're ready to get hurt again because it's the Eagles, uh, and it may happen. You opened the show with that, but I – you know, I'm going to go glass half full for right now. I really like what they've done, and I, I like what they did at the end of last year. We see teams every year that have that burst right then, and you go, huh. And everybody kind of writes them off because, oh, they lost all those games early in the year. And they, they sort of make up their minds in the first six or eight games of a, of a new regime or a new mm-hmm. season, and then they kind of just don't watch them because it's not their team or not their division. And, ah, the Eagles, they stink. They couldn't they couldn't win anything in the first half of the year. Yeah, but did you see the last five or six games? They Their personality changed. They, they created a personality. They stuck to it. They gave some good teams some really good games, and they took some wins off teams that maybe they, quote-unquote, shouldn't have. That, to me, is a really good springboard and when you don't lose any coordinators you don't lose any major components on offense you got the same quarterback you got largely the same offensive line like you're just going to be better and then sprinkle in more weapons more depth at places they really needed it i all that stuff gets me excited so yeah i'm i'm ready to be hurt again to start two and five and end up nine and eight no easy feat no easy feat especially last year first-year head coach, young quarterback, all that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm I'm as high as anybody on this Eagles team. We'll see how they stack up against the Cowboys, who we're going to talk about tomorrow. You know, easily their greatest threat in the division, uh, maybe one of their greatest threats in the conference, to be honest, because Dallas is still a very talented team, very talented team themselves. We have some, some questions, um, but I think that at their peak, Dallas is still one of the teams that can beat anybody, but we'll get into all of them and all of those questions and, you know, maybe sprinkle in some some hopeful optimism about Dallas tomorrow. Apologies to the Eagles fans still listening to this uh, when we get to them. So that'll be Thursday's show and then Friday's show. Remember, we're going to be recapping and kind of predicting the entire NFC East as a whole in terms of awards, MVP, player of the year, rookie of the year, coach of the year, all that kind of stuff. So that's going to be Friday's show. 
Hope you'll join us tomorrow once again for the Dallas Cowboys preview. And until then, later. Take care. wondered how to say good morning in Italian or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.